So I wanted to change things up today and have a guest on that I've been wanting to have on for a long time, and that's uh, Amber Nichols. We first met uh, at Sports Business Classroom. Um, was that 2016? Yes, I think that was 20... Actually, it might have been 2017, I believe. So, and where were you working at, at that point? Were you at the uh, the NBA? So at that point, I was interning at the Players Association, but I was interviewing for my job at the league office during oh, yeah. that time. Yeah, and that's perfect. And then after you after you got that job, we were able to take credit for that at Sports Business Classroom, right? <laughs> for sure, I was, <laughs> for sure I was the I think first alum maybe to get hired at the league office after that. So perfect timing. Yeah. So uh, Amber. You may not know her, but uh, you are going to, I think, uh, in the next 10 years, if you continue on your path. But you are the assistant GM this year for the Go-Go, is that right? Yes, correct. Yeah, and so last year you were the uh, in player development and – you can just tell me what your title is because I don't remember. I should have prepared better. But um, So last year I was the director of basketball ops and player development before getting promoted to assistant general manager for this past season. Um, so, yeah. So as a assistant general manager of a G league franchise, part of why I wanted to have you on is because we, we don't get a chance to hear from people whose careers are, are just starting. A, a lot of people uh, want to get jobs in the G league as a, a springboard potentially. So uh, what are you doing, uh, on your day-to-day responsibilities uh, under like actual normal conditions? So under normal conditions, um, I'm pretty much have my hand in a lot of different areas. Um, A typical day for me is if we are in market, so that means we're playing at home um, within that week, then usually my day starts probably around like 9.30 Um, And I'll get to the office and check any emails and um, prepare anything for any upcoming trips we may have. Um, And then I'll go downstairs and start work uh, watching our pre-practice work um, and then sit and evaluate practice. Um, Well, so can can I can I break in on you there just as we kind of go through one, one by one? So preparing for upcoming road trips, what are your responsibilities for that? So I actually create our itineraries for our upcoming road trips, and I am in constant communication with um, the team that we will be playing on the road uh, to arrange our transportation. Um, I book all of our flights for the season um, starting around like October of that year. Um, And so my job, I have to uh, make any name changes if we have any roster changes to flight tickets. make sure the guys are checked in properly, get bags checked. And I always get to the airport probably around an hour, hour and a half before the team gets there so I can get all of our uh, tickets and, and baggage uh, tags ready for the guys. So when they arrive, I just hand them their boarding pass and we check their bags and we get them through security. So uh, the travel process is as seamless as possible. That seems like it's an incredible amount of work, especially if you have like someone gets assigned from the team the day before and to go on the road trip gets assigned from the Wizards, for example. Like you just, it seems like the, you must have a bunch of processes in place to make sure that you don't miss anything on that. Even mm-hmm. well, the the fact that our G League team um, is in the same building as our NBA team makes it really really easy. Um, Greg Kershaw with the Wizards. And uh, Eric Sebastian um, are usually who I communicate with um, when a player is assigned down. 
uh, to us. And so we communicate every day um, on what players will be with us. And once uh, our NBA assignments are assigned, then I'll take over uh, making sure that they're set to get on our flights uh, and have hotel rooms and stuff like that. So it was a pretty seamless process this year. And that just is a benefit to having your G League team within the same building. Nice. Yeah. So uh, where are you going to go with all of your frequent flyer miles so when this is all over and you oh actually God. have some free time? I don't know exactly where I'm going to go, but I know I am getting out of here and going somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I've had enough of sitting in the house. It's crazy, though, because I traveled on all of our road trips uh, this past year. Well, actually, both of my years uh, being with the Go-Go, I went on pretty much all of our road trips. So there's a time there where you get tired of traveling. And then literally it only took a, a month of, of self-quarantine and self-isolation to like <laughs> realize that, oh, yeah, I, I'd rather travel every week than to not. So, yeah. So so you said uh, you, you kind of take care of some of those logistical responsibilities. Uh, then uh, you get on and and uh, if you all are practicing, uh, uh, you're involved in practice. Mm -hmm. So we'll go down and we'll watch practice um, again. The beauty of practicing in our facility that we share with the Wizards is, you know, if we have assignments down or if the Wizards have players that they need to, you know, rehab down, then they'll practice with us. Um, it was pretty cool seeing John in practice the last few weeks of our season and uh, just him being able to practice with us, I think, you know, brought a level of energy and a sense of urgency to our team that um, really helped us sort of go on a, a, a late season uh uh, win streak. So that was very helpful. Um, and practice is my favorite part of the day outside of games. Um, just being able to go down, be on the court and, you know, see the daily improvement of the guys from day to day and see what we're working on um, and what the coaching staff has planned is, is a pretty good um, opportunity for me to do every day. If y'all have someone down from the NBA team who's trying to just like get some work in or like injury rehab, like, John, do you change things around what you'd normally be doing to uh, accomplish that goal? Or do they just kind of fit into what the normal practice would be? They just kind of fit into what the normal practice would be. Um, when John is down, uh, we scrimmaged a lot um, just to get him some sort of uh, game level reps. Um, so that was, you know, pretty good because not only did, you know, he get the reps that he needed, but I think our team needed, you know, reps and experience to prepare for games adequately. So it was just a win-win for, for both parties. Yeah, I'm sure it like raised the competitive level of practice because uh, all these guys want to prove themselves uh, against a guy who's got multiple all-star appearances and John's trying to get back and uh, reestablish himself as well. Mm -hmm. What I really liked about it was, you know, the leadership that he bought. He didn't really look down on it as, oh, I have to practice with the G League. Like he was, you know, very energetic. He was, you know, teaching guys and, you know, he was finding guys um, during the scrimmages. So that was just, you know, a really good feeling. And and I think it speaks to, you know, this growing um, support for the G League from not only the NBA, but just, you know, people in general. Yeah, I mean, what are the stats? Like almost 50% of players in the NBA have played at some point in the G League. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I want to say over half uh, of uh, NBA starting rosters at the beginning of the season had G League experience. So that's just a credit to, you know, the, the, the G League and how far it's, it's come since, um, since it started. So what are you actually doing personally during practices? So I, what I'm doing during practice is honestly just watching um, and sort of like 
not really evaluating, but, you know, just, you know, seeing how guys are performing and see how our team is performing um, and how we're preparing for the visiting team. Uh, and then a lot of our front office will come down and watch practice and we're just, you know, communicating with each other um, on things. And then sometimes there are things during practice that I have to get up and, and go handle. For example, if there is a, a travel issue or um, if we have a speaker coming in or some sort of player development programming after practice, then I am the one that uh, that is uh, meeting that speaker or, you know, preparing for that programming in our theater. So I'm arranging stuff for post-practice if, if that is the case for that particular day. What kind of uh, that post-practice uh, programming, what, what are some examples of the stuff that you guys have done? Um, so some of the things that we've done is uh, we've had Kevin Eastman come in and speak um, to our guys both years. Uh, we've had some financial literacy uh, courses for our guys. Um, we've also had a cooking class. Uh, the benefit of, again, being in an NBA facility is uh, we have access to a team chef that uh, provides meals for you know our guys every day. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to have uh, the chefs teach the guys how to make chicken enchiladas um, and stuff <laughs> <laughs> and stuff after practice. So during practice, I just you know went in the kitchen and made sure that our uh, nutritionists and our chefs were equipped um, with all the information that they needed on the guys. Yeah, that's got to be nice, especially uh, on a G League salary to just be able to get meals uh, in the facility when you're at home. Because you guys only get a per diem on the road, right? Yeah, guys only get a per diem on the road. But uh, we're fortunate here in D.C. to be able to provide the guys meals um, every day. And like you said, that's something that's you know not done in every G League organization. So to be able to do that here uh, definitely speaks to the level of support and investment um, that we have here at Monumental. Um, all right, so practice is over. It, it, this is probably what, maybe like one o'clock or so, something like that. Yeah, probably about one thirty. Um, we usually practice eleven to one um, in the mornings, um, but again, we share our facility with the Wiz, so you know they get first priority, and uh, we definitely want to accommodate them. So once they're completely off the court, if they're you know in market, then we'll practice after them. So what are you doing then once uh, once practice is over uh, on a normal day? So once practice is over on a normal day, I'm probably going back up to the office. Um, it depends on what part of the season it is. If we're, you know, considering, you know, roster changes, then, you know, our front office is meeting. Um, if we, you know, have anything that needs to be addressed um, in real time by our staff, then we'll meet. Um, and then we're also in constant co communication uh, with our Wizards front office staff, which is, you know, another, uh, I guess, opportunity that a lot of teams don't have is, you know, the Wizards have an open door policy and they're right down the hall. So a lot of the times we're, you know, meeting with those guys just to keep them, you know, uh, in communication on what's going on with the go-go on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. So are you, is, you kind of, it's, it'll just vary from day to day where you just, whatever issues have popped up, if you got roster moves, you, you'll meet about that. Um, and, and then is, is that so, sort of how it work until, uh, you know, I mean, I guess if you're, you would, do you guys have shoot around usually when you have a game? Yeah, so we'll we will shoot around um, at home uh, in the mornings, and uh, then we'll play our like usually seven o'clock game, and we'll do the same on the road. Um, but after practice, another thing that I, I do is um, if we've played that week, uh, then I'll submit reports from the game that we played, um, and so I'll spend you know an hour or two doing that, um, especially if I have free time and like I said, all the trips and logistics are prepared for that week, then I'll, you know, spend 
a, a lot of time submitting uh, reports. Yeah. So is that just based on how your own team played or are you looking at uh, the opponent as well? So we really focus on the opponent. Um, we don't really focus on our guys. Now, of course, if you know there's a situation where we feel like we can make a roster change, then those conversations are more so group oriented and, you know, not just individual opinions. And we don't evaluate yeah. our guys. You know, we don't write reports on our guys and evaluate them individually. Um, but if that's the case, then we'll meet as a group and address it um, and see if there's, you know, any opportunities out there for us to improve as an organization. But if not, then it's usually just reports on, you know, uh, visiting teams and, you know, pers- uh, prospects from, from those teams. Okay, quick break here, and we'll be right back with Amber Nichols. So, yeah, so the purpose of those reports is just to, for uh, you guys, if you wanted to make a move or for uh, if – at the NBA level there just to have more data on uh, the players who are in the G league. If uh, at some point they might want to acquire one of those players. Yeah. So we'll, we'll write reports um, for us. uh, If we feel like, you know, there's a trade down the road that can help us or, you know, if a team, uh, you know, is, if a team isn't really um, continuing their investment in a player and we feel like that player is someone that can help our roster and, you know, we have a report on them from the, the previous season and that's something that we will look to. And then again, like you said, the second part of it is uh, just, you know, trying to get information on guys in case, you know, they have call up potential for the Wizards um, organization. So these reports are, how did you learn how to write them, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing you didn't just come in fully formed and they just said, hey, uh, just start writing these. Uh, tell us what you think. I'm sure there was there like a form that they wanted you to follow. And, and obviously, I'm sure they tried to teach you how to evaluate as well. Yes. So there wasn't really a form uh, necessarily to follow. And when I first started my first year, I was trying to, you know, get my feet wet in my job and, you know, take care of the most important thing at that time, which was, you know, the logistics and stuff for an expansion team. So I didn't really get to write a lot of reports in my first year. Um, So this year, you know, I made sure that I focused on getting reports in every game. And again, the access that I have to our player personnel department for the Wizards is just an advantage that has helped my growth in terms of writing reports throughout the season. so what I do is um, I actually had to, you know, learn synergy and I learned synergy through our head coach. Now his name is uh, Ryan Richrin and yeah. he was a video coordinator back when I interned with the Wizards in 2016. And he spent that summer that I interned teaching me the ins and outs of like synergy and sports code. So having that video background definitely helped me get the platform that I want to write reports on. And then, like I said, learning from our player personnel department. So I'll write my report. Um, they, you know, taught me what a good report has, like what goes into it. Um, and they taught me how to project. So projecting means like you could look at a player and you can write, you know, their strengths and weaknesses, but you should project, you know, what sort of impact they will have, you know, on your organization or in the league in general um, in the future. And that's, you know, the most important part. Um, And then, you know, they taught me how to like focus on any translatable skills. If we're, if we're uh, scouting like, you know, college players or, or seniors that, you know, could be the makeup of our team the following season, then they taught me how to, you know, focus on any translatable skills that I see at the college level that could, you know, translate to the NBA, whether it be the the G League or 
or the parent club. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously the, the hardest thing for me in my evaluation. I don't do it nearly as much as you do, but we still do our uh, our draft stuff for the top prospects and even NBA young players, uh, first, second year in the league, trying to figure out how they're going to develop. I mean, it it's hard. I mean, it's, it's definitely not uh, something that you can can do uh, it, it with 100% accuracy or probably even like 50% accuracy. But um, was it uh, – do you think that you've gotten a lot better over the last like year and a half or so? I think I've definitely got a lot better. I've I always think I have – I've always thought that I've had, you know, a pretty good eye for basketball just, you know, from playing. Um, so I, I think that part – Yeah, was quickly, just, what, what was your, your playing background for, for those that don't know? So I played basketball at the University of Richmond um, from 2010 to 2014. So, like, all of our opponent and all of our, like, opponent personnel scouts and then any personal video edits that are, like – personal player development coaches um, had for us were through Synergy. So that's like when really when I got exposed to Synergy, but I really didn't learn the ins and outs of it until, you know, Coach Richmond sat down and and taught me. Um, But like being a point guard in college, like I know kind of what to look for, especially in point guards and, you know, like good players have high high IQs and, you know, make good decisions um, in certain situations in the game. So I kind of knew what to look for in that standpoint, but I think at first my reports were really long um, and I had to learn how to really condense them and be concise. Um, And I learned that from our scouting department um, on how to do so and and how to still make the reports very meaningful. Um, So I think that is, you know, an area that I've improved in. And then I think the second part, you know, is definitely um, like you said, like just being able to project and being able to, you know, see two years ahead for a player and their potential. And like, not only like, will they be a good player in the NBA or in the G League in general, but like, how can they personally help your team? Like what void do they fill? Um, like what role would they play on your team that, you know, could take you to the next level? And I think that's, you know, the two big components of, you know, what I've improved on from a talent evaluation standpoint. How long did it take you to learn Synergy and Sports Code to where you felt like you had it pretty well? Honestly, uh, probably like two months. Um, and, you know, Coach Ryan and I weren't meeting every day for those two months. You know, we had a like a two-hour sit down, you know, a few times a week where he would, you know, go through and, and teach me how to create, you know, custom edits um, on draft prospects that I like. So, I would say like it took me a while to really get it down, probably like, you know, a couple months. And then this year I'm starting to learn, you know, more things that, you know, Synergy has to offer, like looking at certain stats in the cumulative box and, you know, looking at defensive possessions. And, you know, not only when I first started out, I would look at, you know, the per- how the person scores. So I would just look at their makes, whereas like you're really not getting a full picture of that player unless you're looking at the possession, all of their possessions and assists, because in those situations, you can see their all of their shot attempts, whether it's misses or makes. You can see, you know, their turnovers, their assists, just any possessions that they've been involved in. You can see, and so I think that gives you a better a better idea of you know what that player is capable of. Yeah, I like to look at players' misses a lot, especially trying to project what their shooting is going to look like. I mean, mm-hmm. if they're having some bad misses, I, I usually find that to not be that good of a sign even if you know maybe they shoot a pretty decent percentage because i mean uh, with the g league college and the sample sizes especially from three are so small mm-hmm. uh you kind of have to like look a little bit beyond that sometimes mm-hmm. 
And then, you know, when you look at the misses, like sometimes you can tell, you know, if that person's shot can be fixed. Um, like if it's a mechanical issue or if it's a footwork issue, sometimes you can, you know, tell those by looking at the possessions where they're missing the basketball. Um, and then also you can look and, and you can also tell, you know, basketball IQ from things like that. Like how are they getting their shots? Uh, are they making the right reads? Um, are they efficient in, in how they're getting their shots? Are they coming off of screens? Do they read screens well? For a point guard, you want to look at, you know, what are they doing in pick and roll? Are they getting to the rim? Are they waiting on the screen? Are you know are they hitting the the pocket pass with with accuracy? Are they leading guys you know to the rim? Um, are they good at post entry passing? Like all of those things really fascinate me when looking at film, and um, I think that's just something that I learned through playing, and then again just being exposed to our staff with the Wiz has it's done you know like the most for me because it's it's helped me improved um dramatically just having the the access to those guys yeah that what you were talking about with like two hours of of uh like mentorship with video like a couple times a week that's like that's a, a nice commitment it's good to have that in, in your organization yeah and, i mean in the summer you know it's, it's a little bit lax um i think that was a time that we would have like draft workouts in the morning um and then in the summer like you know our coaches you know are are free so uh, Coach Ryan was very generous and, you know, taking the time out to sit down with me because at that point I was just an intern. So, you know, like, he didn't really have to invest any of his time into me. But um, fast forward, you know, it, it definitely helped me get to, to where I am. And, and that's just a credit to, you know, the organization that I'm in. Like, for example, I interned there and, you know, now I'm an assistant general manager there. And, you know, it just speaks to how much they invest in people um, and, and how much you can grow. So. So uh, over the last couple of years, I know you're still early in your career, but have you started to develop uh, your own personal philosophy about uh, what you really like in players, like uh, what wins that, that might be uh, just uh, distinct from uh, uh, some others that you know? I haven't really developed my own philosophy, um, but I think my awareness just in general of like what I like has grown. Um I like players that, you know, are unselfish. Um, like I said, like, do they have a high basketball IQ? Do they have a good feel for the game? You know, I like players that are poised, that that are winning players, that, you know, don't panic when the game is on the line. Um, and, and then I like players that, you know, are smart and active on, on defense. I wasn't that player at first when, <laughs> <laughs> when I got to college. I was a horrible off-ball defender. I, you know, solely focused on offense. And then as my career got better or as my career went on, I, you know, knew that in order to get on the floor and to stay on the floor, that I had to play defense. So I started taking pride, you know, in being a defender. So I think that is something that I, I look for now um, that I think is, is big. Um, and then just to summarize, like mostly just like smart players that are skilled, that are unselfish um, and that work hard and, and show a lot of activity on both you know, ends of the game. And then, and then guys that are leaders and, and good teammates and have good character is something that, you know, I think is important. And then also something that our organization thinks is very important. Yeah. I would think that uh, some of those things you're talking about, uh, the ability to pick things up quickly, high character, good leadership, that seems like it's especially important in the G league where you have a, a lot of turnover. You might have a different roster uh, from day to day. Your team is, isn't necessarily together as long uh, over multiple years uh, as well. So it seems like those 
characteristics uh, are really important to have people who can fit into the team concept quickly. Mm-hmm. And the the in the G League culture is very important because, like you said, you have all the turnover. You may not have the same roster, you know, at the beginning of the season at the at the or at that you have at the end of the season or the following year. So like your culture is what is going to carry you through. Um, So that's something that we pride ourselves here, you know, um, at the go-go and and with monumental in general is, you know, we have a a certain uh, mindset on what type of players that, you know, will fit our culture and um, will, will not only like provide wins for us, but just provide us overall, just a great team. And because when you're in the G league too, you know, our G league guys, they're not necessarily the focus. Like the focus in the G League is your two ways and your assignment guys. So like there are nights where sometimes your G League guys might not play depending on how many assignments and two ways you have down. So it's important that you have a culture of guys that, you know, put the development of those guys and, you know, put their own, you know, personal, uh, you know, goals aside, you know, for a bigger goal. And, and that speaks to culture. Yeah, I know Tommy is – huge on that every time he comes in uh, at sports business classrooms he's basically just like n- nailing that into the ground every every time he talks but i, I mean there is the, the teams that really are are big on that uh, they end up benefiting even if it's a uh becomes a somewhat common refrain uh <laughs> in the media for us uh, uh us people who are listening um i want to talk a little bit about more about your process if you're kind of sitting down to familiarize yourself with a player that you don't know that much about from a film standpoint. What what does your process look like? Feel free to be as specific as you want to here, because I I, uh, have synergy access as well. I kind of have my process as I'm looking at these college draft guys that I don't know about, but I'm interested to know kind of what you start looking at, how long it takes you, um, what things you find most useful, uh, that kind of stuff. So if I'm if I'm looking at a player that, you know, I'm unfamiliar with, the first thing I'm doing out before I even, you know, look at their video clips is, is try to read up on their backgrounds, you know, not just look at their averages um, or, you know, like what their statistics are, but, you know, looking at their journey. Did they transfer, you know, to a, a different school? You know, what may have been the situation there? Do they have any injury history? Um, do they have any, you know, trouble that I can find, you know, through web-based intel. So like automatically those guys that, that have red flags, I, you know, won't even necessarily consider. Um, but then like, you know, if, if a guy passes that, then I'll, I'll look down, uh, I'll look up their synergy clips if a live evaluation isn't possible. Um, so the first thing I look at is again, like the, the player's offensive possessions and assists. Um, so I'll, you know, see if, First, I'll determine what position I think, you know, they are now and if that position will change at the NBA level. Um, and then I'll look at, you know, their their possessions. So do they have a handle, you know, like where their shots come from? Can they shoot it? Um, so they get so to you're just clicking like in Synergy, you just click. There's like a, a category where it's possessions and assists mm-hmm. uh, as an offensive player where basically every possession that they finish with a shot or a turnover or getting fouled and then – the assists that they have. So yeah, that's that's usually where I start too. I'll just mm-hmm. I'll just click on that and start watching. Um, I try not to look at the stats necessarily first. I'll look at. Uh, I, I want to just watch the film first. That's usually my my process. Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll look at that and then um, I'll look at like where most of their shots come from. So like if you 
get to their synergy page and you look at their offense, you can scroll down and it'll tell you, like, for example, 29% of their shots come from spot ups. So, like, I'll watch a few clips in there and then I'll look, it'll say, like, you know, 25% of their shots come from pick and roll as the ball handler. So, I'll look at those clips and, you know, see how they're executing out of pick and roll. Um, and, And that'll, pretty much, you know, be the basis of what I'm looking at on offense to sort of get a good idea of what their offense looks like. And then I, I go to defense and I look at their defensive, all of their defensive possessions um, and see how they look in not only team de- defense, but you can look at, you know, their isolation defense too. So how they're guarding one-on-one. Um, and then also look at anything that stands out in the cumulative box. For example, if I'm evaluating a big, I'll look at block shots if I think they're a rim protector or a shot blocker. Um, and then if it's a guard, um, one of the things that's, that intrigues me is if a guard is a really good rebounder, especially an offensive rebounder. I think, you know, that's a skill that is, is really good to have at a, as a guard. So I'll look at, at, at things that stand out like that. If I look at the their averages before I start looking at their synergy clips and I see that, you know, they average a, a high number of rebounds or offensive rebounds and I'll look at those clips to see you know what is making them so so successful at being you know an an offensive rebounder or a rebounder as a guard and then something else I look at is free throws so like if a player has a poor free throw percentage I'll watch a few clips of their free throws to see what the issue is is it mechanics or is it simply a lack of of confidence and and I'll put that you know in my report sometimes too Um, and then recently I learned you know the importance of matchups. I didn't really think about that, you know, as I first started doing reports, but, you know, I spoke with, you know, someone from our player personnel department and, you know, he taught me, he was like, you know, when it's a a player that isn't necessarily a high division one player, if it's a mid-major guy, you want to look and see if they played, you know, any other potential draft prospects at that position. And if they guarded them, you want to look at those matchups and see how they performed, you know, against, guys that are considered in the draft or, you know, higher talent. You don't want to just simply judge them based off of what conference and what, you know, level of talent that they're playing against on a nightly basis. Um, And that's something that helped me recently that, you know, I'm starting to put in my reports. Yeah, I think like the context is really important. I mean, who they're playing. I I like to look defensively of, you know, what is this play? How is this player's coach using him too? Because like they're the ones who are the most familiar if they're having that player guard the best guy on the other team, like that says a lot to me mm-hmm. as opposed to if they're just hiding them off the ball and their activity level is low. Or just, you know, if you're a player who, you know, like Jalen Brown at Cal was a perfect example of this. He's playing the three with like two bigs who can't shoot and a point guard who can't shoot. And mm-hmm. so, you know, like are the, the extenuating circumstances of, okay, yeah, these stats aren't that great, but is there a reason for that? Or, you know, uh, or on the other hand, is this person in like the perfect situation and they might not translate? Mm-hmm. And then like also on the defensive end, you want to look at versatility. Like, can they guard more than their position? You know, can they oh, guard yeah. their position? Like, because in the, in, the, in the NBA, you know, defenses switch a lot and you have to be able to, for bigs, you're going to be out on the island. Like sometimes, you know, teams will run a pick and roll to get the big switched onto the guard or on the other end, they'll run, you know, a, a pick and roll to get, you know, a smaller guard posted on a, a larger wing or a big in the post to take advantage of that that mismatch. So you want to be able to see, you know, is a player versatile? Can they guard, you know, more than their position? Can we switch defenses? Can we switch, you know, 
have a switching defense and they not hurt us on the defensive end is something that I'll look for too. Um, so how long does it take you, you think, before – how much do you have to watch do you feel like, okay, I got a pretty good idea uh, of uh, what I think about this player? So if I like a player through their clips, like I'll write them up. Like I'm pretty – Again, I, I guess it's because I'm starting out and, you know, s- scouting is like a big part of what I want to do and something that I'm really passionate about it. So I'm very not insecure, but sort of, I guess, self-conscious about my reports. So yeah. I watch a lot and, you know, I'll go back and, and rewrite my reports a few times before I feel good enough to submit them. Um, and even once I submit them and I like a player through their clips, I'll still try to go back uh, and do a deeper dive and watch full games. Because when you watch full games, that's where you get the situational stuff. For example, you know, how did they perform, you know, down four with two minutes left or down four with 30 seconds left? Like you want to be able to, to evaluate guys in certain situations to see, you know, how they would perform, you know, at the, at the next level. And, and that's when I do a deeper dive is when I, when I like a guy through their clips, I try to, you know, take it a step further and make sure, you know, that, that I continue to like them throughout the process. But usually um, if it's a live evaluation, um, I think you should see that, that player like three times. Um, I think that'll give you a, a good idea of, you know, what that player is capable of. Um, and then outside of that, if it's something through synergy clips, me personally, um, I don't know, I'll probably spend 45 minutes to an hour on a player. That's probably a lot, but again, I'm starting out. So, yeah, no, I mean, well, considering like the huge universe of players that you have to consider that might, you know, play for a G league team. And that, that's a lot more than, you know, people who might get drafted in the NBA. Cause that's just like, you're you're looking for diamonds in the rough even at the G League level. So I think that's, uh, it's, I mean, thank God for synergy though, right? Like that's. <laughs> yeah, thank God. If we didn't Especially have that. Especially in this time, would... you know, right now, like yeah. it's, it's been, oh, yeah. you know, ext- extremely helpful um, to, to have. And, you know, in the G League during the season, we don't scout college guys. We're focused on, you know, G League players. Um, and just the benefit of being able to travel every trip is being able to see guys, you know, multiple times live. Um, so I'll take notes during the game. And um, then as I'm starting to write my report, I'll have synergy up. Um, like I'll write down, you know, a time mark where a player made a good play or they didn't make a good play. And I'll go back and look at the game and go to that specific time mark to, you know, see why I wrote that down or, or to confirm my notes. Um, and then I'll put that in my report. Yeah, definitely. I think that like, that's really useful to like be there in person, get your initial impression. And then if you can go back and look at the film and really like confirm what you saw, I, I, I find that really useful as well. So you're really, I mean, you gotta be writing like hundreds of reports per year, right? Yeah. I, I think I got to, about 75 or so um, before our season was suspended. Um, yeah. And then as we're, you know, in the in the off season now or, you know, as we're, you know, during this break, I've probably done probably like 60 to 70. But again, all of those guys you're not going to like. So the only yeah. reports I actually submit are guys that I like and I think have a chance because, you know, like you don't want to waste – you know, report that on a guy that doesn't have the talent to, you know, be something. So 
I'll just focus on the guys, the 10 to 15 guys, you know, that I like, and then I'll do a deeper dive on those guys. Yeah. I mean, it's it, for me, all I, all that happens if I'm wrong about a player is I just get ridiculed <laughs> on Twitter for, for you guys. I mean, the, you must feel a lot of pressure if you, they bring someone in uh, on your recommendation and uh, you really want that player to do well, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, I, I've been fortunate that my, the reports that, that I've written, like there, there's probably been like one or two guys that like I'll, I wanted to like die on my sword for, but, um, <laughs> and, and that, that was the difference from year one to year two is like, is knowing the difference. Like there's a guy, you know, that I liked and that I rallied for, but you know, in the reality of it, like I needed that to help me learn that, like, you know, be confident in why you like a player, but you know, and be able to communicate that, but, you know, also know, also have the awareness to know, you know, when not to die on a sword for a player that you like. Um, but as far as being wrong, like, I'm sure that happens to, to, you know, everybody's been wrong before, but I mean, I just think it helps you learn, you know, in the end. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, like that's a, we do uh, on our show, we, that's probably like what we do the most is just go back and try to say like, here's, here's what we got wrong. And like, what, what can we learn from that? Um, anything else that you uh, c- would consider like a major responsibility that, that we haven't talked about yet? Um, I would say more so my, my first year, um, this year, I, it wasn't really a major responsibility, but you know, I still had my hand in it was off court player development. Um, yeah. and, and that's something that I really like because you get to, to know the guys as people not just players. Um, so you get to know, like what they their post career interests are, you get to know what their hobbies are, like you know their community service interests um, that they really care about, and so that helps me you know connect with guys you know on a deeper level outside of just you know wins and losses or their production, um, and that, I think that's something that I've just I've liked you know that I've done in the last two years you know of my job, and again you know at Monumental our player development department serves all three teams. So just being able to have the resources there um, to be able to provide, you know, good programming for our guys um, is something that has been, you know, such a benefit to myself and just our organization in general. Like we've been able to expose guys to a whole lot. We took the guys to Turner Sports um, this year and they were able to like tour the inside the NBA studio and they were able to watch a live viewing of, you know, NBA crunch time and, and, and meet those guys. So just having those opportunities is something that, you know, has been a part of my job the last two years that I think is really important has, and has uh, really been a good opportunity for me. Okay. Last two questions here. Uh, first of those is what is the hardest thing about your job? I think the hardest thing about my job again is probably just the, the talent evaluation and, and just because it's a, it's the part that, you know, I'm most passionate about. So it's the part that I'm the most protective of. Um, so I think just, you know, being able to do that and be concise and have you know, consistent, consistent um, reports throughout the season is something that is tough. Um, and then just the other part is just the G League in general, like trying to, to accommodate a lot, you know, of, of different things with, with limited resources from just a league standpoint, you know, at times can be tough. Um, because again, the G league is a professional league, but you know, it's not the NBA. So, you know, we have to take it a a hair down and and still make it, you know, productive, 
um, and a good experience for guys with, you know, limited, you know, resources um, than the NBA. So I, I think that's just, you know, a struggle that a lot of people in the G League go through. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing that uh, a lot of people who come up from the G League, I mean, you're obviously like, you're not there for the money. You're there because it, it, you love it and you, you have to uh, have an ingenuity that maybe, you know, people uh, you can bring to your NBA team um, if you do uh, eventually um, work in the NBA. Um, so last question, what do you like the most about your job? Uh, what I like the most about my job is honestly seeing the the level of growth between the level of growth from the start of the season to the very end from a team standpoint, from an individual player standpoint, our staff, et cetera. Like I, I just love seeing when we started on October 26th with the G League draft, like what did we look like, you know, March 28th or April 13th when our season is over? Um, I think that's the 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 most the most fun part about my job that I like. Um, and then honestly, I love being in the gym every day. I wasn't able to play professional. I dealt with a lot of injuries in college. So, you know, I, I had a stress fracture my freshman year. I tore my labrum in my hip my sophomore year. So my junior and senior years, I was playing probably at 70 to 80%. Um, so I didn't have a chance to go, you know, play basketball professionally overseas. But being in the gym every day, hearing a ball bounce, you know, seeing what new sets we're putting in, how we're going to guard the other team's best player, seeing, you know, our guys like love coming into the gym and and, and improve every day is, is something that is that I really enjoy. And I'm very passionate about basketball and I'm super invested in our team. So just seeing, you know, the little things that I do within my job that, you know, makes you know, our team go or makes, you know, our organization successful is something that, that I enjoy. All right. Well, this was awesome. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time. I apologize if uh, you're only going to be writing 59 reports over the next four weeks <laughs> now because you did this <laughs> instead of 60. Um, but yeah, th- this is great. I hope that people really uh, appreciated having uh, this look into just uh, what someone who's uh, breaking into uh, in uh, an organization, uh, what their responsibilities are. So thanks. This was awesome. We appreciate it. Thank you. And I appreciate you having me. This is my first podcast. So to the listeners and viewers, you know, if I, you know, made a mistake and talked over myself, just bear with me. It's my, it's my first time. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it, if you did, it's my fault for not preparing you well enough, but no, you're, you're awesome. And thanks so much. Uh, looking forward to uh, catching up with you again when we actually uh, can all meet in person once more. Thank you. And, you know, stay safe throughout this time. And and again, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again to Amber for agreeing to come on. And the COVID Daily News with Ben Taylor is going to start right now. A reminder, please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue. Since I am paying Ben to come on the show, I think you'll see what this episode is. Insight is invaluable. And you can subscribe to this podcast as well. There's a link to all the major services or an RSS feed that you can paste into your podcast player in the show description. 
All right, good Thursday to everybody. Ben is back today. We got a very full show, got the usual world and U.S. news roundup, and then we're going to do a deep dive on the concept of viral load and how the amount of virus that you initially are exposed to can affect outcomes. So we'll do a deep dive on that at the end of this show. But let's start in Britain, the latest on Boris Johnson. Dominic Rabb at his press conference. Uh, Rabb, of course, is the foreign secretary who has been deputized by Boris Johnson. Uh, the quote is, he's still in intensive care, but he continues to make positive steps forward and he's in good spirits. Uh, Rabb, however, has not spoken to the prime minister since he was admitted to intensive care and the idea being that he needs to recover. Uh, and uh, Rab assured everyone that we in the government have got this covered. And what about the outlook for Britain here going forward uh, over the next month or two? Well, according to Rab himself, he said that the peak of the virus outbreak has yet to be reached. And I think that jives with the, the public data that we have on this, certainly. Uh, and that the government um, would not be able to say much more about the duration of their lockdown that they have in place. Once experts have had a chance to analyze data on how well it's working, then they'll go from there. Uh, of course, that lockdown was introduced last month. Yeah, and I do like hearing the idea that they are going to be relying uh, essentially on what experts say of when it is safe to lift their lockdown procedures. He, he said, the measures will have to stay in place until we've got the evidence that clearly shows we've moved beyond the peak. He, he also noted in terms of the amount of power that he and the government has, uh, he says he has the power to make quote unquote necessary decisions and the government will continue to follow the strategy set out by Johnson and that the cabinet could take decisions collectively. In Canada, uh, health officials uh, have said that the projected death toll uh, for the nation is between 11,000 and 22,000. That's a uh, now, what range of time that's over, whether that's just in this initial wave, uh, tough to say, uh, but sobering numbers there as more than 5 million Canadians have now applied for federal emergency unemployment help since March 15th. And while they, the official unemployment numbers were only 1 million, uh, that government data would suggest that the real jobless rate as of right now is closer to 25% in Canada. And that's, mm. uh, yeah, go ahead. No, that's, uh, that's a familiar story, not just home, but uh, here in the States, but probably in many other countries that are kind of struggling through this lockdown as the economic numbers come in. It's a huge number. Yeah. And I mean, that's pretty similar to what some of the numbers were worldwide in the Great Depression between a quarter and a third of people being out of work. Uh, the hope, of course, is that there's nothing as wrong structurally with the overall economy as there was back then so that we can return to work uh, once these shutdowns are over. Some Just some really quick, interesting context on that projection from Canada there with the health officials saying the number would be between 11 and 22,000 dead. Uh, we don't have a time frame on that, right? That's correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I and I think a lot of these models now are going to really struggle to capture what happens when we reopen and how well that's done, how much mitigation rather than uh, these than suppression strategies, mitigation being, hey, we're still open, but we're wearing masks, we're standing six feet apart, et cetera, et cetera. We're uh, still working from home as much as possible, but, you know, a restaurant can be open, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it, so the it's really unclear how 
how how I, I mean I don't know how you would be able to model that at this point. Well, the the model aside, you know, all, all those things are going to be challenging. But the point I wanted to make here is that actually takes their per capita, you know, deaths per person or usually per hundred thousand or million, however you want to represent it, that would take their deaths per capita still below where like Italy and Spain are today, but in that ballpark. So you're talking about going from where Canada is, where they only have, I think they have a few hundred, maybe 500 total deaths in the country right now. And over some period of time, that would get them to where Italy and and Spain um, just were recently. So I, I actually don't know how pessimistic that is. It's sobering in volume, but I actually wonder if they're viewing that as a um, positive outcome if it's over a really long period of time, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, no, I, I would view it as a positive outcome. Frankly, they got 38 million people in that country. So that's, uh, that's actually not that bad uh, on a relative scale. The Czech Republic was one of the first nations to lock down pretty strict they had uh, required putting in masks uh, one of the earlier countries uh, to do that to wear masks in public well if you were if you recall even before they put it in we talked about that DIY movement yeah. that developed there yeah so keep going and they have just under 11 million people and 5300 confirmed infections 104 deaths just to, to give you some scale uh their average increase in new cases per day is 224 over the past five days which is down uh con- even though more people are being tested so their plan now for reopening is that south korea inspired tracking system they're going to actually have army testing teams and call centers they're going to use cell phone and bank card data to trace the contacts of patients and get them into quarantine and so some optimism there yeah this is that's really cool yeah that's very cool yeah and so basically what they're what they're saying is because of the data they have right now that suggests the epidemic has really been I, i think the word um in the source we're looking at was stabilized, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's from, that's from Reuters. It's a quote from Roman Primula. Today, I will butcher the names, Nate. Um, Roman P- Primula, who's in charge of the Czech anti-coronavirus measures, he was saying, because we've now stabilized this, we can move into this new plan where we've got this South Korea style, uh, you know, tra- tra- trace and track system. Talk talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think, I think they're, they're, see, we have a, a coronavirus task force. They have an anti-coronavirus task force. <laughs> that's, that's why they're doing better than we are. Um, yeah, so they are trying to take these blanket measures, which are the society-wide lockdowns, and replace them with measures that are targeted individual people. And they've revised their case estimates downward uh, from 50 15,000 by the the end of the month down to 10,000. And so now their plan, they are calling it smart quarantine. They are going to use technology to identify the most at-risk contacts for people who have tested positive. So people who were closest to them for the most amount of times. And they want to then isolate those contacts even before perhaps they've tested positive. I thought this was interesting. Their government's estimate is that an infected person on average infects about 0.4 other people per day. We yeah. talked about it just as a general proposition of what the R naught is, which in a unrestrained society is over two. But this uh, on a per day basis, I, I thought is interesting. So 
Yeah, and what's interesting there, of course, is that that then gives you a target. We've talked about targets and thresholds that you can hit. For this task force, they're saying, well, if it's 0.4 people per day, if that's our estimate, that gives us about three days before that transmissibility number becomes kind of an exponential problem that we have to deal with. And so they're looking at, right, a three-day period here as a maximum where they're trying to identify, uh, test, get the results, reach out to the contacts, and go through that tracing process. Yeah, and then uh, test those contacts, although they, as they noted, you can't test the contacts too soon because then you might get a, a false negative. So yeah. there is a, a required time delay. The Army is creating 33 testing teams and medical students uh, will be providing support at call centers and they're using location data for mobile operators, data on bank card transactions, and they're also using a mobile app based on Bluetooth technology that people will be encouraged to download that will determine which phone numbers came in proximity with identified patients uh, if everyone has the the bluetooth and they can be even more precise about that than they could uh, with mapping applications so this is uh, this is good i mean this is i think something along these lines are what every country is going to have to deal with having some kind of uniformity among countries uh, seeing what works and then being able to export those regimes to other countries uh, hopefully is something that is going to happen at some point it's very similar to the south korea plan um, where they looked at not just your cell phone activity, but things like your bank card transactions. So interesting to see, as you said, sort of borrowing from one place where this seems to be successful, trying to replicate it. Of course, um, as we said at the top, Czech, Czech Republic is an instance where they've had a lot of mass for a while. That could be helping slow the spread. And so you're, you're coming at this thing, you're trying to throw a bunch of defense systems at this thing. Uh, in South Korea, for instance, they also use closed circuit TV occasionally. I don't know if I don't think that was listed here on the on the check plan. Um, but you're coming at it with multiple things to try to deal with the speed of it. The issue with not using technology from what we talked about, I think a week or two ago, is that it, it's just too fast. You can't keep up with it. And so putting in these technological hooks, even if it's an app. In South Korea, the way the app worked was uh, you got like you opted in and you got an alert, I believe, when someone who you had been around or, been, or are near um, had gone on the system and tested positive. So all of these technological hooks uh, allow us to or allow these countries to respond with speed. And we'll see what happens. I, I think it's a promising approach. Another technological approach that's being used are thermal cameras which obviously are in quite a bit of demand and thermal cameras are basically used rather than temperature checks the advantage of a thermal camera is you can get a lot more people quickly someone doesn't have to actually come up to you and get within that six feet two meter range to take someone's temperature if you've got people coming into uh, some sort of a workplace it, it can work well um they are somewhat limited though in their efficacy because they're not measuring the absolute temperature of someone but rather their difference in the amount of energy they're emitting as opposed to other people and the objects around them you have to recalibrate these systems let's say it's cold outside versus uh, an afternoon when things are a little bit warmer you, you have to recalibrate them regularly um and it's just kind of a first step you then would have to follow up with a real thermometer obviously then you you would have to talk to them about symptoms potentially uh, there's also issues because you know someone could be taking a fever reducer and so they don't show up on this is there are 
clearly flaws with any of these detection methods uh but it, hopefully we can stack enough of these on top of each other that we can identify people uh, and in case you're wondering these thermal cameras usually cost between five thousand and ten thousand dollars for a, a full system i'm wondering what the range is yeah, what do you mean well the range of detection is it 50 feet 100 feet oh yeah i think yeah yeah uh, that's an interesting one I, I think you just uh like some of the photos that i saw in the accompanying article were just you know it's at the end of a hallway you kind of walk through an area that maybe is like somewhat similar to like a metal detector type of, of uh, scenario okay. so I, I think you 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 probably put it somewhere where people intentionally have to walk past it uh, it seems like it, kind of the way it works like an entrance yeah yeah what do we got here for domestic news do we want to do our our standard new york update <laughs> uh i don't want to but probably have to <laughs> Uh, yeah, they they suffered another peak day in terms of deaths yesterday, 779. Uh, and as I alluded to earlier, we've got these countries like Spain and Italy that have the highest highest per death capita right now of all the major countries. New York has now passed them uh, slightly in terms of deaths per capita just as a state. So if they existed as a country all on their own, uh, that, that puts it in perspective. But remember, that doesn't take into account, you know, the highest and hardest hit regions in Italy are still going to be worse than New York. But uh, that kind of puts in perspective where New York is on the path. Um, they have doubled fines on social distancing from a $500 fine to a $1,000 fine, according to uh, Governor Cuomo. Not not sure if those are always being implemented, but the idea here is he's still trying to get the citizens to take these measures um you know in a more extreme manner just like don't go out if you don't have to basically yeah there's also some uh, evidence maybe we could talk more about this uh, at a later point that uh, genetically the infections uh, that have occurred in new york uh, the virus genome is more similar to infections from europe indicating that uh, a lot of those infections came from europe rather than directly uh, from china yeah, and we don't. We I don't think we've spent a lot of time talking about that. It's kind of in the the weeds, but the virus is not like a static, perfect genetic thing. It's always mutating a little bit, and so uh, that allows us to you know track to a degree uh, where it came from. That, that's an interesting data point there. This is another one of those supply chain issues. And anecdotal report, but I think it's an in- interesting lens to think about these issues. Tyson. Uh, the mostly known as a chicken company, but they also have a a hog slaughterhouse in Columbus Junction, Iowa, that they shut down for a week after more than 24 cases of COVID-19 emerged among employees at the facility. And so they're shutting down for a week. That seems like a relatively short amount of time. But I think this is an essential business, right? They are producing food that people need to eat who are stuck at home. And so are we going to have more relaxed standards for those type of businesses? Are people who work in those industries going to be subjected to a greater risk because it's an an essential industry where people need to eat? And so hog farms that need to be running those are questions that we're just really gonna have to struggle with of a society as you know how long what's our standard for shutting these places down amazon you know certainly has plenty of places now where they've had infections that's another in theory essential business so there isn't really one right answer to this but but i do think when you have businesses that really the all of these people stuck at home are relying on that maybe you do have to have a little bit of a higher risk tolerance 
tolerance. But on the other hand, you might say, well, hey, maybe those people should be getting paid more for uh, the higher risk that they are undergoing. Yeah. So when you say relax standards there, you, you, you mean actually increase the risk tolerance. You don't mean relax standards for allowing them to go to work, right? Just clarifying. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, like, so a lot of businesses, especially ones that are non-essential, you might say, okay, we've got one case here. This guy has been going to work for a couple of days. We need to shut down because of this one case and everyone who works here needs to go quarantine for 14 days, right? Like yeah. that, that, maybe that's a baseline if you're non-essential. So how far do you go away from that? Okay. Totally draconian one case. We're going to shut down for at least 14 days, uh, and have everyone who might possibly have been exposed self-isolate. How far away of, from that are you going when it is an essential business? Um, and you know, for other things, you know, merchant seamen, I mean, there's how far are you willing to go to other than the most strict things that you could do, which you would in a non-essential business. And I mean, there's that we've closed all those businesses anyway now. Right. So it, it's just, I think that that's the question to me. I mean, clearly everything should be done within the operations of that place in terms of social distancing, PPE, temperature checks, everything that you could try to do to keep these people safe as the factory is running but what is your standard going to be for closing down taking people off the line who may or may not have been exposed when it's an essential business yeah i I think it's both i think it's that i mean certainly the risk tolerance on the front lines for medical workers are high um I think we've talked about this. If you're if you're trying to prevent having a gap in an economic supply chain that's vital and is deemed essential, we all agree it's essential, then you're probably going to inherently have a higher risk tolerance that goes with that. But to the other things you just said, you also then would throw more resources at that. So, you know, if, if you're a local restaurant or something and someone gets it and you shut down for 14 or 17 days, maybe you don't have more resources, but if you had more resources to throw at it, then you could do something like, move operations slightly, quarantine people, have more people work in a slightly different fashion while you're getting them all the necessary protection, all the precautionary things you can do, all the testing, whatever it is, temperatures. I think it's both, right? Yeah, absolutely. And to to that effect, the CDC issuing some new guidelines for uh, keeping the critical workforce working. So here are those recommendations. Asymptomatic essential employees should wear a face mask at all times. Essential workers should also check their temperature before work and practice social distancing while at work. Employees are not to report to work if they feel sick nor should they congregate in break rooms or share headsets or any other items worn on the face. This in addition, of course, to all the common sense hand washing uh, that hopefully has become derogatory now in our society. And um, so I, th- I think ultimately these are recommendations. You know, I don't think there are really you know, health department inspectors going around to all these businesses and making sure that they're doing uh, these recommendations at this point. And so that's really where it becomes difficult is how how many of these companies are really able to implement all of these and enforce all of these you know i think anecdotally there there are plenty that aren't yeah that's a great point uh, any other news we want to hit on before we jump into the viral load discussion yeah real briefly the us federal reserve is rolling out a 2.3 trillion dollar effort to bolster local governments and small and mid-sized businesses what they're going to be doing is directly buying the bonds of states and the more populous counties and cities so that they can get money to respond to the health crisis. I mean, maybe doing things like buying PPE or hiring more workers eventually for contact tracing or just a 
all of the stresses that this has put on local governments this will give them a way to raise money and they're also going to offer four-year loans to companies of up to 10,000 employees uh, through this program as well. All right, let's talk a little bit of about this idea of what your infectious dose is and what your viral load is and how that affects some outcomes with COVID-19. Viral load. Let's talk about it. So basically, you may have heard this term, What what is viral load, right? Like, what, what does that actually mean? So viral load is the measurement of how much virus is basically in an individual host. That's what we're measuring here with viral load. However, this is a different thing than your initial infection amount, which I think I, I've seen it conflated or sometimes they kind of go together. That that um, initial infection amount, or it's not even the t- right technical word, but the amount you're initially exposed to is an infectious dose. So Edward Parker, uh, London School of Hygiene, has a great way of thinking about this. Your infectious dose is the spark that lights the fire, but your viral load is a measure of how bright and strong that fire is burning inside you. So this initial infectious dose, how does that affect your eventual outcome? Well, I think the technical answer for COVID-19 right now is we still don't entirely know. Like, for instance, everything is so early in the in the research community and all these folks and experts that do this, they couldn't even tell you the minimal infectious dose amount, like what that is. And it may vary from person to person or whatever. But because COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 is a coronavirus, then, you know, experts make some assumptions and say, well, you know, it's, it's related to other coronaviruses in the family. It's like a cousin of the original SARS or from 2003 when we had the outbreak in China or uh, MERS or something like that. So they look at other viruses and they can say, well, we expect it might be like a few hundred particles or whatever it is, some, some small amount. With all that said, Nate, there is still a reason to think that the sort of initial infectious dose, the amount you're initially exposed to, could matter in terms of your health outcomes. For instance, another respiratory uh, virus like influenza, they have found that higher initial exposure seems to correlate with a greater chance of infection. Um, So again, the idea that you're hit with a larger dose first could have an effect on your outcomes. Yeah. And when you say a larger dose, that could be a period of exposure that lasts for a long time. You've heard discussions of, well, when you're in contact with someone for 15 minutes or more, that that's where you're more at risk. There's also, based on the viral load in the droplets or any surfaces that you touch, you know, how concentrated is it from this other person that's shedding the virus? So there are a number of variables that are going to determine what your initial dose of the virus is. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into that in detail a little bit more in a second, but first let me just say, let me pause here and inject sort of the theoretical underpinning of why, you know, being exposed to a greater dose initially uh, could cause more problems. Uh, in, in short, 
try to be as short as possible here. Uh, you basically have your immune response. You basically have two sort of systems that work as your defense systems. One is what they call the innate immune response, and one is the adaptive immune response. The innate immune response is generalized. It's not, it, it doesn't specifically care or know what invader is coming to the body, what foreign pathogen is a threat. It's just the thing that protects you. It's your army that you send out for general defense. And that works very, very quickly. My understanding is we would not, we would not be around and alive to talk if we did not have these guys working on our side. Okay. The adaptive immune response is the thing where you have like antibodies or you have a specified response where your immune system learns what a specific invader is and learns how to fight it um, and take action against it. Okay. So two separate things. Yeah. So, so, so and, and quickly just to elaborate on that, the innate response, that's where in the early days of an illness, you're going to get an increase in temperature, right? Because there's- Yes, exactly. For, for a lot of viruses, increasing the temperature of your body slows- it's replication. You've got uh, interferon cy cytokines, which slow down the infection. They're just, and you'll get a lot of collateral damage from those uh, as well because you can. The, yeah. yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So, so you can. Um, there, are, there are a couple ways that that innate response works, and the cytokines in particular are uh, what they say you know creates the symptoms that we're all familiar with. So, like fever and sweats and ache. That that's not necessarily the invader per se. That's that's your innate immune response, the cytokines. And to your point, yes, one of the things that has happened with this disease is your you can actually get a cytokine storm. You can get all these cells that respond, all these defenders that try to take off uh, the invading army and they respond too much and there is a lot of collateral damage. You actually start uh, apparently like eating your own tissue and it can cause it can cause massive problems. So, okay. Yeah, you, you sure it's not cytokines? No, I'm, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> clear, clearly I pronounced that wrong. Um, yeah, another one of those words that I've only seen in print, right? I, it's the, the danger of reading as opposed to uh, listening or, you know, actually having had a professor tell you this stuff in a lecture. It's just a testament to your studiousness. <laughs> um, so a nice a nice quote here is from uh, Rick, Rick Desfart. That's another name I'm going to butcher, a Dutch name. Um, but he's a virologist in Rotterdam. And he says, look, here's the thing. If you give the virus a head start, with a very large dose, you are going to get more dissemination of the virus, you're going to get higher infection, and therefore you might have worse disease. And so when you think about the relevance of this innate versus adaptive response thing that we just talked about, your innate response is the thing that's like holding down the fort, sometimes very well, sometimes until it can trigger the adaptive response. And an adaptive response is something that occurs over a matter of days and weeks versus minutes and hours. And because it's an exponential fight, because viruses are replicating exponentially and your body's trying to uh, sort of create countermeasures in kind, that innate response is really, really important. So you don't want to get overwhelmed. That's the theory. Yeah. but And part of the problem though with older individuals is it takes longer for that adaptive response to kick into gear in general uh, among older people. And because of the damage that the innate response can cause, 
if you get now down into the lungs, the disease has progressed and you don't have the adaptive response kicking in quickly enough, that's when you get all sorts of crazy inflammation. You get uh, this ARDS, so you're having to be put on a ventilator. That's when you re- viral pneumonia develops. That's when you really get into trouble is when your adaptive response isn't kicking in quickly enough. Is that a fair way of saying it? I, I think so, yeah. And I think it's also the same kind of theoretical underpinning for the immunocompromised. Yeah. So if you have some glitch in your immune system, right, that that system of defenses that you have, innate response first and then triggering adaptive response, if it's delayed and it gets overwhelmed, then you're going to have a lot of virus potentially and a lot of problems as it replicates uh, inside your body. Yeah. And that adaptive response is essentially, all right, we have now identified these specific particles. We're not just going to flood all, all these resources into this area where there's an infection pell-mell and kind of kill everything in that area. It, we're now going to be able to specifically target the virus and infected cells rather than it being just this generalized response. The the adaptive response, all of this is super, super cool, but um, way, way in the weeds to get in the biology, which um, other experts can do far better. But yeah, that's that's the concept. And those who stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> so we, we talked about this a little bit so far, but this idea of viral load and shedding, it, what is the difference between that and this uh, initial infectious dose? Okay. So that is going to be more about, so remember what viral load is, first of all. Viral load is just a measure of how much virus you have in a host. So I think the thing that's really relevant for us as lay people in the audience is viral load is really about transmissibility. It's really about how much you are shedding virus out into the world, uh, you know, that someone else can then basically contract. So there's two big factors here. One with the load, how much how much virus is in whatever is secreted? So if you secrete a droplet, how much virus is in that droplet? And then two, how much how many droplets are you secreting? And this gets back to what you said about the 15-minute conversation or being close to someone or whatever. The general concept is that if you are shedding a lot of virus, high viral load means whatever you uh, excrete has a lot of virus inside of it. And then you're talking and all your droplets and particles and these things are coming out of your mouth. Remember, not just talking, but singing. Uh, which we've discussed many times, and anything like this coughing, sneezing, whatever, that's going to throw these things out into the world, then you are more likely to create an infection, basically. That's the, that's the thinking. Let me, let, me quote, let me quote Professor Richard Tedder here. Um, he's a visiting professor in, professor in virology at the Imperial College of London. He says, from looking broadly at the overall data from material, the amount of virus varies by up to a million fold in range, meaning very low viral loads in some people and very high viral loads. And the, but the amount of virus that comes from an infected person is influenced both by uh, the load that's excreted and the volume that's excreted. So, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So all of this means that being close to someone who is shedding lots of virus will again raise not only the chance of infection, but experts have reasons to believe that it could make the infection worse because you're getting that higher initial dosage. So what about the idea of 
being exposed to the virus multiple times, right? Let's say you're at you're at home, you have an infected family member, and you know on Tuesday you're getting exposed, then you you start to uh, you have enough exposure to maybe start an infection, and then on Wednesday you're exposed again. Is that going to increase your risk? I couldn't really find anyone who thought that was the thing that's going to increase your risk. You know, remember there's a lot of unknowns here. They haven't been able to put this in a lab and, and test it in these kinds of conditions. So th we're looking at, you know, theoretical relationships that exist between cousins or other respiratory viruses and all of these immunologists and virologists that, uh, you know, I've heard or read about or looked at research that they've pointed to. No one has come out that I've seen and said like, yeah, that's the thing that's going to happen. Instead, it's, it's more likely that you're going to uh, get it, get a heavy dose from the individual initial dose. So to quote, um, here's, a, here's a virologist from the Imperial College of London, and she says, directly, there's no evidence for the suggestion that if everyone in a family is already sick, that they're going to reinfect each other with more and more virus. That's not really, I guess, how it works. And that makes intuitive sense, right? Because if you think about the amount of virus that's in a droplet once you actually the virus gains a foothold in you and is able to start replicating using your cells the amount of virus that's created there is so much larger than the amount that would be in a droplet that you get right so else it's once you've been infected any additional infectious agents that you get from someone else are just a drop in the bucket basically i mean i i think to cover my bases here again we're not immunologists or virologists but i think i think that one depends depends on the speed of the virus replicating different yeah. viruses will replicate at different speed and i'm not sure we have a great idea of how fast this replicates right now in um in vivo we might we might have it in vitro but not necessarily in an actual host yeah in vitro meaning like in a lab setting yeah yeah sorry in, in sorry. vivo meaning like actually in the real world in people's bodies so now I do think it's important to draw a distinction because what we're talking about is, all right, you've, you already are infected and then you're serially exposed again. When you're not infected, continuing to be serially exposed is going to increase your risk of getting the initial infection. Uh, right, right. So, so, so that's an important distinction to draw. But, you know, w once you're, you're already infected, it's probably the worry about being around other people seems to, who might be infected or, or getting exposed again seems to be a little bit lower. Um, it, you know, if you're, say, with another family member and you both have it. But if one family member has and the other one doesn't yet, that's when being around them for a long time, the amount of viral load in their secretions, all of that is going to determine your odds of getting infected. And also potentially, as we're talking about here, the severity of your infection it could increase based on the amount of viral load uh, that you are, or I'm sorry, the, the uh, infectious dose that you're exposed to. Yeah, I think that's the thing, the takeaway for people at home and even thinking about the condition of healthcare workers. Uh, by the way, in, in China, they actually said today that they mistakenly sent people with symptoms home to their family because that, you know, is a way to still infect your family. Um, but the takeaway is that when you're home with someone who's infected, and this happens at hospitals with healthcare workers, it's not being hit with, you know, doses over and over again. It's it's that you're going to be more likely to be in close quarters with them and thus more exposed to droplets and virus for you to get infected. Tell me about that China thing, actually. I haven't read that yet. 
Oh, it was just a brief brief thing where they were saying that initially what they had done was sent people who had symptoms. And in, in the early parts of the outbreak, they had sent people who had symptoms home. They said, go home, just stay at home. But the problem was that also infected other people in the family. And now they are, I, I don't know if they've implemented it, but they're looking toward moving citizens toward like a... Uh, a quarantine-specific area where only quarantine... I don't know if it's a hotel or something larger, but the idea is you would actually quarantine away from your family. Yeah, and that uh, obviously makes a lot of sense, especially because you're those are the situations where you're going to just be repeatedly exposed to the virus if it, your family member they're getting cared for at home. So, and I mean that was uh, when you don't have those places for them to isolate, then having everyone be at home is better than nothing, right? You still don't want them out in society creating new clusters, but you're probably going to see at least still uh, an increase in the number of infections when you're just having all these everyone go home uh and then that has to play out within that family unit but then at least it's not getting transferred to another family unit but i i think for all countries and and us in particular here where we haven't seen any of this at all really to have a place for people who uh, have symptoms or self-isolating have reason to believe that they're exposed to go away from their families uh, is important so what are your key takeaways ultimately uh, from uh looking at, at this question so and i i hope i've I hope we've done it justice here uh, in terms of summarizing it. But for me, the takeaways from everything we've talked about are, one, at a high level, we have reason to believe, and uh, by the way, other other experts have mentioned this extensively in researching this in their interviews. One, we have reason to believe that if you have a low infectious dose, that, that idea that you're infected, but it doesn't take much virus particles, it doesn't take much of the virus to infect you, that that can explain the really high transmissibility of this virus and even the idea of shedding a lot of virus and moving it around when you are asymptomatic or even pre-symptomatic. There's some debate or studies on you know when you're shedding the most load and things like that. Um, but conceptually, that that puts in place this idea of like, okay, if you have a low infectious dose, that's why we might see really high transmissibility of this thing. Second takeaway for me is that all the things we've talked about and we're practicing, physical distancing, masks, things like that, matter a lot. Because even if you're like, we've talked about it just going through some of the concepts here. If you're three feet away, six feet away, 10 feet away, whatever you excrete can dissipate or fall down. Or, you know, if you're close to someone, you're going to get more of it. If you're farther away, you're going to get less. And then when you add a mask, masks even just sort of uh, things covering your face can stop certain projectile particles coming out of your mouth when you sneeze or cough or talk. And so you protect the people around you when you are infected. And then on the receiving side, if you have a mask that has some ability to filter out, in other words, it's not black and white. It's, it's a gradation where you can get less and less and less and less virus. And at a certain point, you have so little virus that you come in contact with, uh, you wouldn't even be infected. You wouldn't even meet that, what they call that minimal infectious dose. Yeah, I mean, and the idea of a very small dose leading to a less severe infection is not a new one. This has been around since, you know, even the days of smallpox and the concept of inoculation. And I don't think that we're at a point where we'd consider anything like that with this virus. But again, if you, the reduction of risk, yeah, you want to reduce your risk enough so that you don't get it at all. But especially as we're talking about people re-entering society, the idea that if you do get it, don't have it be that bad and 
hopefully the use of more masks in public continuing to maintain distancing where possible avoiding large crowds avoiding doing things like singing for example where you're really there's just such well that's that's your favorite (laughs) that's your favorite the singing (laughs) sorry keep going yeah so so i mean i i I think that's ultimately the takeaway here is that right yeah yeah close convert close intimate conversations the length of the conversation you know i think it was in the guidelines right about if you have to have exchanges now if you're paying at a place you know these are all the theoretical reasons why you would not want to linger and have a five minute conversation from three feet but sort of get in and get out with your exchange of a credit card or picking up a bag or whatever yeah much better to have a three minute conversation from five feet (laughs) than a a five minute conversation (laughs) from three feet um or also if you think about even you know places that are loud like a concert or a bar where you have to like get really close to someone to be heard you know that kind of thing uh you know there's just and we have no idea exactly how much all of these mitigation strategies are going to work when we try to go back to normal but it seems like really any little bit that you can do is going to help you both reduce your chances of getting infected or the severity of that infection uh, once uh if in fact you get exposed enough to get an infection but maybe one that's not that bad Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see as these countries put in more and more of these measures. I mean, we won't know. It's just such a large soup of variables. There's so many unknowns. But one of the signals that could correlate with this is, hey, you have more distancing, more masks, et cetera, et cetera. And now your transmissibility rates fall. This is what we talked about with Czech Republic earlier. Uh, And so all of these things... Uh, we've talked about the theory and sort of the underlying things. These are all the reasons why you might want to keep taking these precautions and why they hopefully continue to be successful. Are there any other factors that uh, have been shown potentially to affect how bad your outcome might be once you get infected? Um, I think the only other one relative to this conversation we were having today that I didn't get to was the concept of things like a lack of sleep, where you know if you're a healthcare worker and some of these healthcare workers have been slammed with really severe cases, there may be other things that we've seen in you know, flu or other studies related to prior respiratory or infectious diseases where it's like pretty clear signal that if you get a lack of sleep that you're going to have slightly worse or potentially uh, much worse outcomes than if you don't. So th- things like that, just your general taking care of yourself and all that stuff probably also helps your your response. Okay, well, that will wrap it up for today. We definitely appreciate any comments. If there are any topics that you are particularly interested in that you would like us to take a look at, feel free to tweet us i'm at nate uh, nate duncan nba ben is uh, at lgelgee35 uh, on twitter uh, we appreciate everyone who has left us a, a review already uh, some really awesome stuff to hear that's uh motivating for us uh, and please tell your friends about this as well a reminder we'll pretty shortly be only doing this on the new covid daily news feed it is up on itunes that link has been tweeted out if you want to subscribe uh it's up on spotify as well at this point so we're making our way through it's a long process all the major podcast players and if you want to support this endeavor patreon.com slash duncan larue is uh the best way to do that since we are not ad supported at the moment Uh, but uh that will do it for us today we'll be back on sunday talk to you all then